time for the message this morning. And uh, I get you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. And we'll just read one verse this morning as we look at the fifth and final uh, sermon uh, in this series on the Trinity. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16 says, Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. <clears throat> and now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to him. Let's pray that he teaches us his ways. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that we can trust every word within it. And we pray that our hearts would be drawn to you uh, after this message and through this message. Father, I pray that as we learn more of you, that we'd be more amazed at how awesome you are as a God, that we'd rely on you more and that we would understand uh, your ways more. Father, give us your wisdom this morning. Grant us your grace as we seek to glorify you uh, uh, in our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've mentioned, today will be the, uh, the final um, sermon in this series. Uh, this is the fifth uh, sermon in uh, the series on the Trinity. Look, we could go on for a lot longer, to be honest with you. There are so many verses that we can look at and so many patches that, passages that we can dig into uh, regarding this particular subject, but I thought five is probably going to be enough for us as we want to equip ourselves with the truth and to help us understand better where the doctrine of the Trinity actually comes from. My prayer is that uh, after five of these sermons that you will have a good understanding of it and that you would understand more uh, about the nature of God and the character of God, that you'd be encouraged more um, to trust in God, to trust the Bible as well, because the Bible does give a consistent message from beginning to the end. And we have looked at passages from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. All of them reveal this amazing God that we serve. And as this verse uh, says this morning, um, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning and he hasn't god has declared clearly and carefully uh, his nature and his desire and his love for mankind and um, i pray that uh, this series uh, has drawn you closer to god and has helped you to understand who he is more and if you do need to defend your faith if someone comes to you and says there is no such thing as a trinity um you have the resources you can turn to, or maybe you will remember uh, those passages that we've uh, looked at over the last five weeks and be able to share those uh, as well to explain to people this is where it comes from in the Bible. So in our opening scripture verse, we see the testimony, if you look at it, of the Son of God. This is him actually speaking, who was sent to the world by the Father and the Holy Spirit. In one verse, we have... The Trinity in undeniable clarity. Um, and it is in the Old Testament, not, not even in the New. The one speaking says that he has spoken to mankind from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, he was there. The only one who was there from the very beginning is God. Only God has been there from the very beginning. Remember the phrase, in the beginning, God. That's because God is the only one who was there from the beginning because he made the beginning. So God is the one speaking in this particular verse. Yet he says, the Lord God and his spirit had sent him. Now that would make sense, would it? In normal, in normal talk, 
um, there would be absolutely no need to mention the Holy Spirit as well separately to the Lord God if he wasn't actually a person too. It'd be, be like me saying, um, I went for a walk with myself down the street. Well, no. One of, the, one of the common themes that we find among the cults, apart from the fact that they deny that Jesus is God, the Son, is their insist, insistence that the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Trinity. In order to dismiss the Trinity altogether, they insist that he's not a person at all, but just some sort of a force like magnetism or gravity. But the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is actually a ghost or a spirit, not some Star Wars Jedi force that you draw on to, to move things around. The scriptures clearly ascribe personal details to him and it consistently refers to him as a he, not an it. In our opening verse, how could the Son of God declare that the Spirit of God had sent him? If a spirit had no will or individuality, how could you say a force sent you or God's force? Why even mention the force if it was just a force? Let's have a look at how, some, how the scriptures describe the Holy Spirit uh, to us this morning. As we, we want to just focus this morning, first of all, on the nature of the Holy Spirit. Now, most of you know the Holy Spirit has been mentioned from the beginning of the scripture, and it's mentioned right at the end. It's pretty much mentioned in the first verse and the and the last verse. The Holy Spirit was active throughout all the Old Testament. We, we see his activity in creation. Um, he would come upon God's people to empower them for God's work. We see examples of that in people like um, Samson. Um, he came upon the prophets, and he would uh, give them the message that they were to uh, deliver to the people of God. And he also was the one who told them what words to write in the Bible. So we have the Bible written over 1,500 years, essentially, of time uh, with about 40 different people. And the Holy Spirit moved all of those people to record exactly the words that God wanted them to write, which we have in our hands today. So that's an amazing um, blessing as well. But in the New Testament, the Bible says that he was sent in a very special way. He had like a, a new role to play. Let's see what Jesus says about this specific role that he would undertake um, after Jesus was ascended back into heaven. Let's have a look at John chapter 14, verse 15 to 17 this morning. We're going to look at some a very important passage which speaks about the Holy Spirit and about his job uh, in the world. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's Jesus speaking. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. The promise of God in the Old Testament was not just that he would send a saviour to the world, but that he would send his spirit as well. One thing to take notice of here is that Jesus said that the Father would send, see that word another? Well, that means another like the previous one. Well, what was who was the previous one? Well, the previous, the previous one was Jesus. Jesus was the comforter. And Jesus says, when I go, I shall get the Father to send you another comforter like me. So, 
since Jesus was a person, we can be confident that the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit, who would abide with believers forever, is also a person. How? Well, he would indwell them and he would keep them forever connected to God. In addition to this, Jesus says that the world cannot receive him. The world can't receive him because it doesn't see him and it doesn't know him. Well, last time I checked, you can't know a force. You can know a person. You can know someone else. I can know you individually. I can know what you're like as a, uh, in terms of your character and nature. But you can't really know a force. You can't know magnetism or gravity. You can't know that on a personal level. The Holy Spirit is a person. A force doesn't also dwell with people, nor does a force make his home or abode within people. We know from the Bible that some evil spirits have been able to possess people, which means they go and live inside those people. And Jesus, we see a number of times, cast those demons out because they have a very bad effect on those people. But guess what? The Holy Spirit can also inhabit people and he has a very good effect on people. The Holy Spirit is able to live inside because he has a nature, a character. He is a person and he can influence a believer from the inside. He lives in us only because we have been made fit to be an abode for him, a home for him, because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin and stain. See, he can't live in a dirty home. That's why Jesus' blood was shed, so that we have been made fit to be a place where he can live. See, the evil spirits can live in any home. In fact, the Bible says that when they go and live inside a person, they make him more dirty. They make him more evil. The difference with the Holy Spirit is that God the Son cleansed us and made us clean, and the Holy Spirit makes us more and more holy with his presence in our lives. He is The Holy Spirit is self-aware. He is not just a force. Go forward to John chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. you know, so we see here the role of the Holy Spirit is to teach believers. He teaches believers the things that Jesus taught and to help them to remember those things. Look at John chapter 15 verse 26. Jesus says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now, why does the Holy Spirit need to be sent if he is just a force? I mean, does, isn't God's force available throughout all the universe? Isn't God everywhere already? Why does the Holy Spirit need to be sent? Well, we send the Holy Spirit, or God sends the Holy Spirit, because he is a member of the Trinity, and he has a specific role to play when he is sent on that mission. 
Just the same way that Jesus, God the Son, was sent into the world for his mission, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world for his mission. His mission is now to be in the heart and live in the heart of every believer, to draw people to Jesus, to testify of him, to teach them the truth. He has a pretty important role to play when you think about it. And we see his work right at the beginning of the book of Acts, when he spoke through the apostles in other languages to testify of Jesus, the very job that he'd been sent to do. Acts 2.33 says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. What was going on? He was speaking, he was preaching through Peter the Apostle, and the disciples and the other apostles were speaking in languages they had never learned before. And the people from all different parts of the world who were in Jerusalem at that time heard them speaking in their own language. They said, hang on a sec, what's going on? These are Galileans. We can see the Galileans. They look like Galileans. They dress like Galileans. We recognize them as Galileans. What are they doing speaking in Persian, in, in, in all different languages? It was because the Holy Spirit was now empowering them to do God's work, to testify about Jesus Christ. The next thing I want you to notice is that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed just like God. So you can blaspheme God. The Bible says that it's a, it's a sin to blaspheme God, to use his name in a, in a way other than in a reverential or honoring way. You can say something that, um, that is blasphemous by saying, for example, if you say that God is evil, that's a blasphemous thing. If you, if you tell everyone that God is an evil entity, that's blasphemous because it goes against his nature. But you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit too. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. I'll give you a minute just to, um, to find that passage there. Matthew 12, verse 31 says, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, if the Holy Spirit were just a force, then it would be impossible to blaspheme him at all. What's even more interesting is that Jesus says, you know, you can blaspheme the Son, you can blaspheme him, and it'll be forgiven you. You can say uh, even evil stuff about Jesus, and... It will, be it will be forgiven you. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it won't be forgiven you. And Jesus was speaking that in the context that when the miracles that he was performing were evident uh, to people like the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, they said he was doing it by the power of the devil. So they were essentially calling the Holy Spirit the devil and they were rejecting Jesus' ministry and rejecting the Holy Spirit's call. Once you die, having rejected the call of the Holy Spirit, there's really no forgiveness after that. The scriptures also teach the Holy Spirit can be lied to. So he can be blasphemed and he can be lied to. And last time I checked, you can't lie to a force. Only an intelligent being can be lied to. Lying to the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, is lying to God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. 
Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And here we have familiar story of Ananias and Sapphira, who had played a bit of a trick. They told everyone they were doing one thing in the church, and yet they were doing something else. And they're before the apostles here, and Peter uh, speaks to them. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 says, And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied to men, but unto God. You see, you can lie to the Holy Spirit. And if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. The Bible also calls the Holy Spirit Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Holy Spirit is called Lord. He can be blasphemed. He can be lied to. Hmm. And we saw in John that the Holy Ghost, as the Comforter, has a role as a teacher for believers. And here are some more examples of that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 11. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, scripture verses today, uh, a lot of things to cover. Um, and if you, don't, if you can't um, turn with your Bibles uh, there, if you can't get there fast enough, don't worry. You'll be able to watch the video again. Just a reminder that whatever link we send you um, on a Sunday morning service, you can keep watching that link always. You can watch it a month from now or two months from now, uh, as long as YouTube is still working. So Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, says, And when they bring you into the, oh, unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. So the Holy Ghost teaches us what to say. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul says that the Holy Ghost teaches us spiritual things. He teaches us spiritual truth. In fact, he is called the Spirit of Truth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual you know something? Last time I checked, the only way that the Holy Spirit can teach is if the Holy Spirit had a mind and an intellect. And because he has an intellect and a mind, he not only teaches, but he makes choices and he gives instructions to believers. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3. In this, specific, this example... The Holy Ghost um, gives direction of what believers are to do. In Acts 13, 2, it says, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Did you notice something? It says, The Holy Ghost said, separate me 
Barnabas and Saul. He spoke, he made a decision, and he identified himself as a person. Separate them to me. So to this end, he thinks, he chooses, he directs and guides believers in the truth to follow his lead. When there was a dispute among the believers as to what commands the Gentiles were to follow, very, way back, right in the early church, you know, as, as the, the church started in Jerusalem and we originally had just Jewish people part of that uh, church, uh, and then as time went on, it spread and spread and, and came into Samaria and went into the Gentile nations and the Gentiles started coming in. There were problems because the Gentiles were now with the Jews. They had very, very different customs, very, very different uh, backgrounds. And there was a dispute that went on. And the, the, the question arose as to you know, what rules do the Gentiles have to follow compared to the, you know, the Jews? Um, uh, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow Moses' laws? Who, who's going to do what? So there's an interesting passage or verse in Acts chapter 15. And the Holy Spirit got involved here. Yes, it was brought before James and Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. And there was uh, Paul and Barnabas there. And they were, they were trying to work this thing out. But what's interesting is that the, it was the Holy Ghost who actually came to the who led the final conclusion to the matter. In Acts 15 verse 28, it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And then he goes on to explain what those things are. So it seemed good to the Holy Ghost? How does something seem good to a force? Well, it's not. That's the problem here. The Holy Spirit is not just some force, some ethereal force of how God wields his power. You see, God is present everywhere anyway. He can do anything he likes at any point in time. The, the, the challenge we have here, or the thing that we need to understand, is the Holy Spirit is a person with a specific job to do within the Trinity. Just as God the Son is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Holy Ghost has come to the earth and he has a job to do. So in summary, the Holy Spirit is called a he. He was sent by God just as Jesus was sent. He is a comforter just as Jesus was a comforter when he was with his disciples. He indwells believers. He testifies of Jesus. He can be blasphemed like God. He can be lied to. He, like a person can be lied to. He has a mind. He has an intellect. He teaches. He makes decisions and he guides believers. In short, the Holy Spirit is a person with a very important role to play in our lives. Now, just as we saw, the Trinity mentioned in that verse uh, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 48, we saw the Trinity clearly where Jesus, uh, mentioned there, where God the Son says, you know, uh, God and the Holy Spirit have sent me. The Lord God has sent me and the Holy Ghost has sent me. Where They're all mentioned together in one verse. You now, some people have raised the objection that uh, uh, the, the Trinity is not true because the Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. You know what? It, that really isn't. Hermeneutics is not in the Bible. There's a whole lot of other words that aren't in the Bible. That's not really an argument, is it? 
There may not be the word Trinity in the Bible, but there are plenty of places in the Bible where these three are mentioned together, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all are mentioned in the same verse. Why keep mentioning these three over and over and over again? The word the Trinity may not be mentioned in the Bible, but the Trinity is revealed over and over in many places in the Bible. Let's have a look at a few of those. Let's have a look at the way the Trinity has been revealed in the ministry of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at, first of all, the conception, okay? The conception of Jesus. Have a look and go, go to Luke chapter 1, verse 35 with me. At the conception of Jesus. So, so what I want to share with you this morning is that the Trinity reveals itself, has revealed himself, God, at specific points in Jesus' ministry. Really important places, okay? And you'd say that probably the first place that's really important is the, the, is the conception of Jesus and then his birth, okay? So in Luke one thirty five, the angel had come to Mary and had gone all, uh, sorry, the, uh, Gabriel had gone to Mary and also had been to Joseph and shared this message. But look at the message. The message that Gabriel sends or gives to Mary. He says, And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Did you see the Trinity there? The Holy Ghost shall come upon her. The power of the highest shall overshadow her. That's God the Father. And the one that would be born of her would be the Son of God. There are your three. The power of the highest, the Holy Ghost, are two different things. And the result is the birth of the Son of God. So the, here is a trinity mentioned at the, the conception of Jesus. Now, when did Jesus start his ministry? Well, Jesus started his ministry when he got baptized by John the Baptist. Turn to Luke chapter 3 verse 21 with me and we'll see that when Jesus was about to begin his, his ministry <clears throat> and he got baptized to start that, that whole thing off, we see the Trinity again, clearly shown. Luke 3.21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. Look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 3. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Who's speaking? God the Father. God the Father, obviously, because he's saying, You're my Son. So we have God the Son being baptized, God the Holy Spirit coming down on him in the, on the, in the shape of a, of a dove, and God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, You're my beloved Son. There's your Trinity. We also have the Trinity involved in the resurrection of Jesus. You know, the, the question you might ask is, well, who, who raised Jesus from the dead? The answer is, all three of them did. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost raised Jesus from the grave. They were all involved in it, just like they were involved at his baptism, just like they were involved at his conception. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, 
who raised him from the dead. So according to Paul, the apostle, it was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Yet let's have a look at a couple of passages where Jesus says something a little bit different. Turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Let's have a look who, he, who Jesus says is going to be raising him up from the dead. John 2, 19 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in the building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Who is Jesus saying will raise him up if he dies in three days? He says, I will raise it up. Hmm, you might say, hang on, did Jesus misspeak over here? Wasn't it the father who, rose, who, who raised him from the dead? Well, John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 gives a little bit more information. Jesus says there, therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Who has the power to lay down his life and to take back his life? Jesus does. So who was involved in raising Jesus from the dead? Himself, but also the Father. So where was the Holy Spirit? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And now we have the third person of the Trinity involved in his resurrection. And you'll notice there, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So the, the analogy here is that if the spirit's living in you, then you'll be raised up as well because he will raise you up just as the spirit of him raised up Jesus from the dead. So we have the three involved in the resurrection of Christ and we have the three involved with our salvation with our eternal security and with our resurrection as well. So it's not just in certain places where we see the, the, uh, the Trinity revealing itself, such as the conception of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the, the resurrection of Jesus. There are numerous places in the, in the Bible that refer to those three together. Okay, let's look. I'm going to look at a few of those. I'll go through these fairly quickly. Um, just so you have this as a reference for yourself. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. It says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God, which worketh all in all. You notice three, in three verses, you have three references, the Spirit, the Lord, and the God. Who works in all. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Mentions all three in one verse. 
Likewise, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 to 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice how it mentions Spirit, Lord, and God the Father. And finally, 1 Peter, actually not finally because I've got one more after that. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2 says, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Yeah, amen. Grace and peace be multiplied through God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And now, probably the most compelling and clear statement concerning the Trinity in the whole of the Bible. And this verse is omitted from many modern translations which rely upon corrupted manuscripts which we've, which we've seen in the past. We don't need this verse to prove the Trinity but because we have plenty of them all over the place, but it is the clearest definition of the Trinity. And some of you may already know which verse I am referring to, and that's 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. 1 John, the first letter of John, not the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 7. And it says in that verse, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The Father, the Word, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There is no clearer verse that defines the, uh, the Trinity apart from this. Which brings us all the way back now to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is both Lord and Saviour. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you can receive Jesus as your Saviour and not worry about Him as Lord until some later time in your life. You either take Him as Lord and Saviour from the beginning or you don't take Him at all. He is both the Son of God and He is the Messiah, the Christ. His identity is crucial to your salvation this morning. If you've put your faith in someone other than the biblical Jesus, then you've put your faith in a counterfeit. You've trusted in a counterfeit which cannot save you. And there are unfortunately some people in this world who call them, even call themselves Christians who are believing in a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible. He is someone else that they have come up with who is not the Son of God who can save them. Turn with me to John chapter 8 verse 23. And I'd like to just to, and this is going to be my final thought for this whole series. As we go back to the Lordship of Christ and why it is so important that we understand that Jesus is God the Son. And you understand that there is God the Father and you understand that he sent God the Holy Spirit to actually work within our hearts. And this is the way God works. If you have a different God, if you have a different Jesus Christ, then you have put your faith in a counterfeit. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus says, and he said unto them, <clears throat> Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. 
For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Who are you? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. I love the way he says, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. Do you remember that, that verse in Isaiah 48? He says, I haven't been speaking in secret from the beginning. And yet Jesus says, I've spoken to you from the beginning. Jesus is from above, the eternal one. He is the one that God sent to save the world from sin. He is the one who spoke those words in Isaiah 48, 16. If you do not believe that he is the eternal one, the sent one from that passage in Isaiah, then Jesus says you will die in your sins. You cannot receive Jesus unless you receive him also as Lord. You know, last time I received a coin, or last time I paid with a coin, it has two faces on it. A coin needs to have two faces for it to be legal tender. You can't shave off one side of a coin. You can't shave off the tails and just leave the head and then expect to go and spend that coin at a, at a, a shop somewhere and expect them to, to um, receive it and give you the goods as legal tender. They won't do it. And the reason is it's not legal anymore. It's not worth anything anymore. And this is the same that, Jesus, that people do with Jesus. You can't take Jesus as Savior and not receive him as Lord. You can't take Jesus as, uh, as a man and not receive him as God. It's two sides to the same coin. If you take away one of those, it's not legal anymore. You can't trade it for anything not worth anything. So turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 45. As we see Jesus speaking once again in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 45 verse 22. And this is God speaking. Look unto me. And be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. Now listen to these words. That unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Who's the saviour? God's the saviour. God says, for I am God, there is none else. Look to me and be saved. To whom must, must we bow the knee? God says, to himself, to him. That every knee will bow to him and every tongue will swear, will actually say, yes, you're right. Now, think of those words for a moment. God says he is the only saviour. Every knee will bow to him and every, every tongue will confess to him. Now, let's move forward in time to where the Apostle Paul quotes this verse. And have a good look at who the whole passage is about. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verse 7. Romans chapter 14, verse 7. Now listen to Paul's words here. 
he says in verse 7 of Romans chapter 14, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, we belong to him. In life or death, we are his. Who is the Lord? For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of the dead and the living. You got that? Okay, let's move ahead. Jesus, Lord of the dead and the living, and who sits on the throne of judgment? Look at verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's judge? Jesus is the judge. Jesus is both Lord and judge. He is the one whom the world will have to confess to and give an account to. Now, look at verse 11. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Who do we bow the knee to? We bow the knee to the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ, the Lord of the living and the dead. Who do we give an account of ourselves to? To the one who sits on the throne. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ, the Lord and Saviour of the world. Paul repeats the same thing again in the letter to the Philippians. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which means God gets God the Father gets the glory as well. That's why Colossians tells us when speaking of Jesus Christ some really important things. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 with me. It says in those verses, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church. who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Which means he, he needs to have the first place in all things. He is the first of all things. The firstborn, which means he gets the inheritance. He has the supremacy. Everything was created by him and for him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that we can see God's very nature in. This is why the apostles Paul and Peter refused to receive worship. 
Now, when when Paul when they, when Paul was speaking to the Greeks and they and they wanted to worship him, him and Barnabas, they were saying that they were saying that one was Zeus and one was Apollos, and they wanted to worship them and offer a sacrifice to them. And Paul tore his garments and said, "No, no, what are you doing? I'm a man just like you." And the same thing with Peter. Peter said, "Don't." Don't uh, worship me when they fell down at his feet when he did a miracle. Because they said, we're just men. And in the book of Revelation, we see when God sent his angel to, to give John, uh, the apostle, a message and the information that he needed to write down. We see uh, John fell down at the angel's feet. And the angel responded and said in verse 9 of chapter 22 of Revelation, uh, he says, see that they do it not. Don't do that, for I am thy fellow servant. I'm a servant just like you, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them that keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So even John made the mistake of falling at the feet of an angel. And the angel said, don't do that. Worship God. Fall at the feet of God and worship him alone. So men don't receive worship, and angels do not receive worship. But when people fell down at Jesus' feet, he received the worship. He doesn't ever forbid them from doing it. He doesn't say, no, 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 don't fall down at my feet. Don't worship me. There's a, a passage in John chapter 9. If you look at most of John, uh, John chapter 9, Jesus had healed a man who was born blind. And that whole story is an amazing story in and of itself because you have this interaction between the Sanhedrin, the parents of this person who was, uh, who was um, uh, made to see again and then himself before them. And then they ended up casting him out of the temple. I said, get out of here. We don't want to know you because they didn't want to know Jesus. And he comes back to Jesus and we have these words in John chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus finds him again, okay? So the poor, the poor fellow, he'd been, Jesus, he, he'd been born blind. He'd never seen in his life. And Jesus, and he was, the poor guy was begging. And he was, and Jesus gave him his sight completely. And as a result of that, because he said that, that Jesus had uh, healed him, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, no, you're out of here. You're kicked out of church. You're no longer allowed to uh, come here anymore. Um, Jesus then finds him in verse 35 of John chapter 9 and it says here, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he found him, he said unto him, dost thou believe in the Son of God? And in verse 36, it says, and he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And in verse 37, and Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, because he can now see, and it is he that talketh with thee. And look at verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus didn't forbid him from worshipping him. Because Jesus is God, the Son. Jesus is the manifestation of God on this earth. And it wasn't just him. You see, Thomas, who everyone calls Doubting Thomas, after Jesus had been resurrected, Thomas doubted. I mean, he hadn't seen him. He'd heard that the other apostles had seen him, and they were all saying, we've seen him, we've seen him. And he goes, what are you talking about? 
I saw he, you know, we, I know that he's crucified. I know that they put him in a grave. Now you guys are saying, you've all gone crazy here. I, I want to see for myself. And so there comes a point where Jesus shows himself to Thomas too. And in John chapter 20, verse 27, it says, And then saith he to Thomas, he said, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. He said, look at the holes in my hands. Here, touch here, where the hole was, um, or where the hole still is. He goes, don't be faithless, but believe. When Thomas saw the wounds in Jesus and recognized Jesus, in verse 28 of John chapter 20, it says, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. What did Thomas believe? He believed that Jesus was Lord and God. Thomas was not saying my God, as in, as in some people who use God's name in blasphemy. Because I've heard some people ask, uh, answer in that way. Oh, he was just saying, my God. No, no, no. That's blasphemy. That's taking God's name in vain. That's not using God's name, in a, uh, calling upon God in a reverential way. In fact, he was making a proclamation. He was saying that Jesus was both Lord and God. And Jesus accepted it you know there's a um, before Jesus ascended back into heaven it says that he got together with his with his disciples and those who believed in him and in Luke 24 verse 50 he says and he led them out as far as Bethany so he, they were with him. can you imagine being with him after he'd been resurrected and you see him again and he's and he's being glorified and he's just it would be such it would have been such an exciting time to be together with him and the bible says in luke 24 50 it says and they led and he led them out as far as bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them and it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven so they saw him going up into heaven and look at verse 52 of luke 24 it says and they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Unlike men, unlike angels, Jesus receives worship because of who he is. Which is what makes reading the Bible and understanding it so exciting and enriching. Jesus is God in the flesh. God the Father is obviously God. And God, the Holy Spirit, is working in the hearts of believers today. So let's go back to the beginning of the verse from this sermon. Isaiah 48, 16 says, Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou should goest. God from the beginning had a plan to rescue mankind from sin. He would send the Son, 
to die for the sins of the world. He would live our life. He would live as we live. He would walk our streets. He would eat food as we eat. He would experience pain, disappointment as we experience those things. He would experience tremendous suffering, suffering that we experience as well in our lives. He would know the love of a family and know the, the way that, that families interact. He would know the betrayal of people. He would experience all the things that we experience in life. He would then willingly take a lonely cross and carry it to a hilltop and die for our sins. God came into our world. He died for our sins. And the Bible says that now he has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us into his truth. This is the truth. That God is Father, Son and Holy Ghost. And the exciting thing for a believer, if you have Christ in your life today, if you have bowed the knee to him already, and you've experienced what it means to be saved, and you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, the Bible says that the Son of God will return to this earth one day in physical form. And the Bible says that every eye shall see him. He will come to this earth to dwell once again with mankind, to live among us as Lord of all. Listen to this final passage as he makes a very special promise to you. And we know that he keeps all of his promises. And we know that he is true in all things. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10, our final passage. Thank you for your patience with me this morning. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10 and 11. Have a look at his promises made to you this morning. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Think of that verse. Meditate on that verse. God says, I will come and dwell in the midst of thee, saith Jehovah. Many nations will be joined to Jehovah in that, on that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee. I will be living in the midst of you and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to thee. God sends God. God has sent God more than once. God has sent God the Son and God has sent God the Holy Spirit and God will send once again his Son into this world to live among us. Have you recognized the Lord of hosts has sent his only begotten Son into this world? Have you recognized the Son of God? Have you understood that he will one day rule this world with perfect righteousness and love? Have you bowed the knee to him? Have you recognized him as Lord and Saviour of your life? 
That's what you need to do to be saved this morning. Going to church will not save you. Trusting in, in other men will not save you. Relying on the faith of your parents will not save you. Reading the Bible will not save you. Being a Baptist will not save you. Being a good person will not save you. Only receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior will save you. Only trusting in him and the work that he's done for you will save you from your sin. Have you bowed the knee to him? If you haven't, bow that knee today. Don't waste another day. Live for him and benefit from having God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Ghost in your life. Understand how important it is that God holds you in the palm of his hand and gives you an amazing future. I pray that if you haven't experienced eternal life, if you haven't received eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord yet, I pray that, that, that today will be that day. Don't waste another day. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn away from sin Turn to him and receive him as your saviour. And you will have a home in heaven with him one day. You will see him face to face. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And God, Father, Son and Holy Ghost will never let you go. God bless you all.